as a little girl, I always dreamed of being one of those really cool private investigators who got to run around and do all kinds of exploring and researching and doing stakeouts and finding out what bad people were up to. That is not how my life actually unfolded, but I've always had a fascination for the world of private investigation. And liking me, I actually met a woman who is a PI and who runs her own private investigation firm that is largely female. I wanted to bring her on the show because I really didn't know what in the 21st century a PI could actually do or how that could be very helpful to an ordinary woman. And I think that you will learn, as I have, that there is so much that a PI can do to help somebody who is being preyed upon. And it's a fascinating conversation. I hope that you learn as much as I did and enjoy listening to her because she really is a cool person. Here we go. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur-Rude. And today I am super excited to bring a brand new type of guest onto the show. She is a woman who has quite a story and does a kind of work that I think many of us don't have much insight into and probably should. Tracy Crute is a licensed and insured California private investigator with 30 years of experience in investigations, more than 17 years as a sworn peace officer, seven years employed by the Social Services Agency of Santa Clara County, and experience even in the world of corporate investigations. She has worked undercover. And she recently was selected as one of the Power Women of the Year by Small Business Concierge Magazine. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Thank you, Cynthia. I'm so glad that we actually managed to schedule this, even in the midst of all the chaos out in the world. So thank you for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Well, I like to start the interview with some sort of simple questions to get everybody in the groove and nice and relaxed. Are you ready for those? I'm ready. All right. What is your favorite way to relax or de-stress? I hate to say it, but it's socializing and Chardonnay. (laughs) (laughs) So how are you doing that now? A lot of uh, virtual work we're doing. So I am still very busy and employed and fortunately have a husband and a daughter that are around as well. So that keeps me from going stir crazy and I've stocked up on my uh, Chardonnay stash. Do you have a favorite vintner or brand of Chardonnay? Testarossa. Ooh, I have never tried that one. Yes, they're in Los Gatos, uh, family business. I just, I, I love them. Chardonnay is my favorite wine to drink as well, and I have never heard of Testarossa, so I'm going to have to look for that. Yes. If you could live anywhere in the world other than Silicon Valley, where would that be? I think the Palm Springs, Palm Desert area. I know it's not so great for the summer months, but um, I, I, I really like it. It's very clean. People seem very nice. So I'm a little bit attracted to that part of the state. 
Do you like heat? No, I don't like real hot heat. So we've got a little uh, rental, a little teeny condo here in Silicon Valley. So I could see going both directions. <laughs> ah, so more of like a vacation type well, home? Yeah, so s- summer here in our condo and then uh, winters in our Palm Springs property. That would be really nice. So what is your favorite self-care practice? Uh, boy, you're hitting me with questions. I just, my self-care, um, I, I do a lot of reading. I work on Facebook, just general. I, I really work a lot. I don't do a lot of self-care other than the relaxing after a good work day and socializing. Mm-hmm. Well, I would think that given the work that you do, you would probably need something that is restorative. Is there anything, is it, is it just really that relaxing with a glass of wine that sort of grounds you and brings you back out of that world that you inhabit during your work day? It's more talking with people that are not in the business. So at Testarossa Winery, I've met a group of people that are from all over the world. And it's extremely interesting to hear what they do, what they know about their countries, you know, medicine, policies, and all these different things. So really socializing is a big deal for me. And we are working on some online uh, sites and I'm spending a lot of time on the telephone with people. Oh, that's great. I think the whole telephone connectivity thing is something that I started bringing back into my life because I realized that I just wasn't picking up the phone to call people anymore. I was so in the habit of doing email and text and stuff like that. Right. And um, I started picking up the phone to call people that I haven't talked to in quite a while. And it's so cool. Yes. Totally had forgotten how nice that was to do. Right. Yeah. What advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your 20s? Learn from your mistakes. So it, 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 mistakes can put, push you forward. It can put you in a new direction. It can open a lot of doors. I think as young in my 20s, I would see things that uh, were discouraging or made mistakes, but they got me to where I'm at today. And I wish I had the old saying, don't sweat the small stuff, but I wish I, I could have not done that and been a little bit more positive. So are you saying when you were in your 20s and you made mistakes, you saw them as being very negative? Yes, I did. So how do you turn that around then? I think it's the old adage, when one door closes, one opens. And I, It was fortunate for me that that's what happened, but it was like in the moment. And I think it's probably true for most people, but in, in the moment I thought, oh my gosh, you know, my career is over. I, I was laid off uh, by a corporation back in the eighties, advanced micro devices when the chip industry went down and I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? Where am I going to go? And I ended up, it took about four months, but being able to get, to get on uh, as a peace officer with Santa Clara County. And it was the best decision. I tripled my income. It was really a great thing that happened. Oh, I love that. And I think that that's often how we respond when there is some sort of catastrophe that happens. and. We think that life as we know it is ending and don't realize that there's something completely new opening up if only we actually will see it and step forward into it. Exactly. And I think the same thing is true with relationships. I I think when you're younger, 
it's so devastating. But to look back now to go, no, that was the right move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I never could have lived with this person. I never could have spent my life with this person. But, you know, at the time, it's, it's emotionally devastating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, where did you actually grow up? I grew up in Danville, which is about an hour from San Jose, which is where I'm currently located. So um, the Danville Contra Costa County. And what was your path through your young years and, and up through into college? Because I know that you have a master's degree, right? That's correct. So I, I went to San Jose State almost completely because I had had a boyfriend that was going to San Jose State. My parents were furious. They took me to UC Davis to let me look at the campus and I wouldn't get out of the car. My mind had been made up. So I went to San Jose State, was a psychology major and a dance minor in the beginning. And then I took a class in criminal law and I just loved it. And so by my junior year, I had uh, declared my major as criminal justice and a minor in business. And then after getting employed with advanced micro devices, entry level into the corporate investigation section, which was just five of us. Then I went and got my master's degree and I took the whole seven years, but it was taking at least one to two courses each semester. I found I really, really liked college and this, the master's programs are seminars. So there's usually six to eight people in a seminar. So very different than undergraduate work. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I love that you started in a, like a high tech corporation doing corporate investigations, because back in my early days, when I was working in high tech, when I, both at digital and then later at Apple, I interacted a lot with our corporate security department that handled all the investigations. And I was just fascinated by it, but I never actually went that way because I had kids and eventually, you know, jumped out of the workforce to be a, be a mommy. So it's always been a fascinating thing for me. What were some of the things in your corporate investigation career that really stood out to you? Oh, one of the first big cases I got to witness was a homicide. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> of all things. Yes. We apparently had uh, someone that was in our buying purchasing division that had a cocaine problem and he didn't show up to work for several days. And my supervisor and I went to go just do a welfare check, which, you know, seems kind of silly. You usually would ask law enforcement to do it, but they asked us. So we went out there and got the uh, landlord to open the door and open the door. And with within inches, you could see the man hanging and he had been hung, shot, stabbed, suffocated, really, really brutalized. And it was, we, we had a suspect that eventually left the country. Um, so he was never caught, but it was, it was a, a over drugs. Holy cow. And how did you process that experience? Because I bet you that was not something that you were anticipating getting into when you went into investigations. No, but you know, as much as it was kind of gory, it was also just, wow, you know, let's investigate this. Who can we talk to? Who can we interview? It got me going. So it's kind of weird to have that be my first case. But at Advanced Micro Devices, it was like being in a city. There was 12,000 employees. And then we had facilities over in the Philippines. And we had things like uh, cargo theft. 
where we were supposed to be receiving platinum and instead uh, uh, at the harbor in San Francisco, we'd open it up, it's going to be a bunch of rocks. So we had that, we had internal theft, we had, um, in, we had 24 hour security at I think 15 or 18 buildings. So every day I would get all the incident reports and process what was security, what was facilities, what was medical and what was investigations. But it was like working for a small police department with the thefts, with the violence and fights and trade secret thefts that started to get big there in the 80s. So it was all different types of exposure uh, within the corporate setting. Mm -hmm. What kind of workplace violence issues did you encounter there? It was mostly jealous women fighting over men. <laughs> we had fabrication, uh, the, the wafer fab operations where it was 24 hours and some of the off-duty or off-hours people uh, would get into arguments over, over boyfriends or husbands and so forth. And so we, we'd get reports on that. Did you have any like sexual harassment type investigations to do as well? I do not recall. I think that was way before the era. This was in the early 1980s. And I do not recall a single case of that coming to light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember. I mean, that was the, the era that I was involved in high tech as well was um, through the 80s and into the nineties. And I don't remember hearing too, too much about things like that being in the information security realm myself. A lot of it had to do with protecting the information. Right. Um, and then later on when, uh, when we did layoffs, there were issues of disgruntled employees, people who were really pissed off about being laid off. And so we had to develop whole new processes for how to handle situations knowing that there were going to be more layoffs, you know, and just trying to prepare so that there weren't any violent incidents in the company. Right. Which, I mean, that's, as you know, that's just gotten pretty common. I have a few colleagues, that's what they specialize in is, is walking the employee out the door. They're armed just to keep the, the company safe. Mm -hmm. So then why did you go into law enforcement? You mentioned having been laid off and that uh, law enforcement was the next step. Like, How did that actually happen and, and why did you go the way you did? Sure. Well, it, it was, it was uh, baby steps into it. So I was hired on initially by the County of Santa Clara, the Social Services Agency, and it was a sworn position. You were a peace officer as a welfare fraud investigator. And within that realm, I dealt with social services and uh, those that were committing welfare fraud, housing fraud, food stamps, and so forth. And that kind of gave way. At one point, the district attorney decided to take over our division. And then we were able to obtain a number of different types of crimes and cases. And so it wasn't by choice that I ended up with the gun at my side. <laughs> it just slowly happened. And then uh, after the DA's office took over, quarterly training of defensive tactics and firearms. So it was every three months you, you had to do the training. I had just had my daughter. Uh, that was back in 92. And I was suddenly the training coordinator, the uh, extradition team head. They gave me all kinds of uh, extraneous responsibilities and 
made me a team leader. It was one of the first team leader positions that ever came up. So life changed really quickly when I went to the work for the district attorney's office and then was getting more involved in things that included narcotics, grand theft, organized crime in, in a multitude of cultures. We've got a big Vietnamese and Hispanic population, but particularly the Vietnamese that was difficult for us. We eventually got four Vietnamese speakers on onto our team, but those were difficult cases. Wow. What a wide variety of experiences you must have had in that environment. Oh, yes. So then how did you come to start your own agency? Well, I was uh, injured while still employed at the DA's office and eventually needed to take a disability retirement and thought I would never go back into law enforcement. I thought it was done. So my girlfriend helped me become a real estate agent and I went to work for Century 21. I actually did really well. I was surprised. It was the only job I've ever had outside of uh, investigations. So I made that for about 12 years and then decided I really missed my background. So decided just to take the test, not knowing where I was going with it. And a friend of mine who is a former reporter with Bay Area News Group, she and I were talking about what we wanted to launch together because she's an ideal interviewer after 25 years being a reporter for Bay Area News Group and the Mercury News. So we were going to launch something really simple called Check Date. So for the Silicon Valley woman, if you want to check out the, the guy that you're going out to lunch with or you're met out to dinner with and you met him online, you could contact us. And for a fee, we would do a criminal, civil, family law background, let you know if we got any hits. You know, is the guy bankrupt? Is he paying huge amounts of child support? There's a lot of information we can find out. So we were going to start with that. I joined um, the largest professional organization in the nation, which is the California Association of licensed investigators. And through that, I started networking. Those people gave me my first jobs. Cali is what they're called. And uh, from then, I started getting attorney referrals and was brought in by the director of the Silicon Valley Trial Lawyers Association to their membership. And I am now extremely busy with some very large, very well-known corporation attorneys. That's fascinating. I I love hearing sort of the origin stories of women's businesses because everybody's got a really cool story, but they're all completely different. And yes, I I love that you know your initial idea was check date. That's something that I certainly would have loved to have used back when I thought I'd dip my toe in the internet dating world. And I know, you know, my my daughters have had experiences where they really wish that they could do that. You didn't eventually go forward with that, but do you know if there's anything comparable now? Oh, we actually will do that. We will do, that's a background check. So we will, we will do those. And I even recently I had a case with a, with a dad who's concerned about her daughter. Her daughter is mentally disabled and had been dating, seeing another individual who, who had also was mentally disabled. And he was concerned that she was talking about having sex. And he said, she's 30 years old. I want her to have a normal life if that's what this is about. But I just want to know, tell me something about his background. And uh, 
I checked him out and found out criminal history. And he was also on Megan's Law database. He was attracted to children and had child pornography and told a police officer in an interview that he was really attracted to his ex-girlfriend's daughter who was four. So, I mean, that type of thing, you know, concern from a parent, concern about women and the men they're dating. That's something that we do. It's just not what my business model is. I thought that was going to be my widget. I think everybody needs, uh, most everybody need a widget, which is something that you can provide over and over. And it's a steady source of income. Whereas I'm all over the board. I have so many different types of cases. And I absolutely love that, that I have such a variety. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you still do that. And I imagine that most people don't know that you can actually go to an investigator and get that kind of background report. What is it that you can do that is more than, you know, what I could do as an individual just doing the Google and searching on the internet? Well, we have access. It's only available to attorneys and private investigators. We call it skip tracing software. So there's a a number of third-party companies, that's all they do is they put together this information and we subscribe. We go through very stringent screening. They come to our home. They photograph the locks on the door, the security on our computers, that we have shredders, locking file cabinets, and so forth. And they do that on an annual basis. So I subscribe to two of those services. Uh, Some people in the legal field call it LexisNexis. So anyway, I start with that, which gives me phenomenal leads. In most cases, I get just a tremendous amount of information, as long as we don't have a, you know, a John Smith. That, that makes it difficult. But um, usually, I, I, I can get hits, find information, find the people, and you know, locate them for whatever. You know, we need to interview them, we need to serve them a subpoena, or what, whatever we need to know. So so I have that. I have the ability to network with all of these Cali investigators statewide. And I have access to all of these attorneys and all of these different fields to give me assistance. And then I also have third parties, again, that will only work with PIs and attorneys that do asset searches for bank accounts, for assets. So for the women going through a divorce and they think the, the guy is hiding something, we we have access to the ability to do those types of searches as well. Oh my, you really do have access to far more resources than your average individual. So that makes sense that you can really dig so much deeper than, than I would be able to just by, you know, letting my fingers do the walking. So that I had no idea. (laughs) Yeah, no, we've got a whole, it's called open source investigation techniques. They call it OSINT. So we have people that specialize in that. There is so much, I've taken four seminars on it. There's still so much to learn that I'm still using a third party to help on the actual social media searches, but uh, it's just incredible what we can come up with, especially like on the dark web. I had one woman claiming to be a victim and apparently she was in the sex business. So we did uh, research and found her on multiple uh, sites, uh, stripping and other things for tokens, quote unquote. We found things on the, on the, on the dark web we found out she was um, a, a dancer at a gentleman's 
clubs and that she also was an admitted prostitute. Now, let's not just say a prostitute can't be sexually assaulted. However, it did impact some credibility. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like, what is the training like to become an investigator? Because it sounds like you really need to know a lot in order to do a good investigation. So how, what is the training like? Okay. Well, so I can kind of compare it to being a real estate agent. Maybe a lot of people can relate to that. So you need to have as a PI before you can sit for the test, you basically have, have to have 2000 investigative hours, which amounts to between two and three years. So you have to be certified then you have to be able to pass that test. And I can tell you that test is not an easy test at all. When I was uh, in my late 20s, I took it, failed it twice. So it's, it's very difficult. And I really had to know, I had to have a lot of experience in every job I ever worked in order to pass that test. So I needed that experience. And so once you do that, it's just, you, you've got your license, then then you've got to find your clients. So just like a realtor can go out, do their, their research, their training, they can pass the test. And now what? You know, it's not like you've got clients waiting for you at your front door. You have to go do marketing and advertising and socializing and networking. But did you get any training in like how to interview people and how to do a stakeout and how to trace people, like how, what kind of training did you get? This is all from law enforcement. So there isn't training for a private investigator other than there's some specialty schools, I understand, that will do some kind of certification. I've only known one woman that did that. She was from Oregon, so that there was some training. But over the course of my 20 years with the, the county and being in law enforcement, I took numerous surveillance and interview and interrogation techniques, including FBI. So most of my training came from law enforcement. And that's why I, I would estimate 75% of other uh, PIs have our former law enforcement of, of some type. Oh, that makes sense. So I'm curious about, you mentioned working with people going through divorce and doing some asset tracing. Do you, or have you ever worked with women in like intimate partner violence or domestic violence situations? And yes, you know. <laughs> the answer is yes. I've worked normally, it's at the time that they've separated, and it's been with women who are getting restraining orders. And unfortunately, they normally, not normally, usually may have a child or two with with the abuser and that's where it, it gets tricky and usually the exes uh, hiding assets and incomes because they don't want to pay child support and here in the tech world we've even had one client that uh, the ex-husband put listening devices inside their child's little laptop computer and so he could listen in on everything that went on in the household so Yes, I've worked closely. I've worked uh, with attorneys to help them. I've worked with therapists to help them because there's some pretty awful uh, cases out there of domestic violence. So then if, if the woman is in a situation where she wants to get out, would it be beneficial for her to work with an investigator before actually 
leaving that relationship? Probably yes. And probably also I would advise them to talk with an attorney. Usually a lot of women, they just don't have, you know, a lot of money. So I, I do a free uh, 30 minute consultation. If we go beyond that, then I, and I charge an hourly fee, but there's also uh, the bar association that uh, someone can meet with and get for 50 to a hundred dollars, a 30 minute consultation with a, with an attorney. And then also, I know you're aware of the uh, battered women's shelter, but next door has free counseling and uh, legal advice as well. But yes, it's always a good idea to know the options. And I just say, make an educated decision. It doesn't mean you have to do it, but just make an educated decision. So as an investigator, what kind of advice would you offer to somebody who is leaving a situation? That I would, I would more put them in contact with the battered women's shelter. They're the experts at this. I am not an expert at how to get somebody out. That is not mm-hmm. my expertise. So I would refer them to, to next door and I would be a part of the conversation, but I, I need to train counselors to come in at that point. Right. But I guess I'm thinking like you have seen some of the shenanigans and some of the activity that happens when a woman is leaving a relationship or has recently left. So like, what are the lessons that you've learned that women really need to watch out for or be aware of? Well, that they need to have a plan. They need to keep themselves safe and secure. Uh, so there needs to be a plan and it needs to be done very carefully. So that's the time that, as I think we all know, the, the batterer is most likely to become very violent is when the partner is leaving them. So that is just a very, very uh, dangerous time zone for, for people. And then what have you seen afterwards? Because I know, especially in Silicon Valley, where tech is just so pervasive, it's very common for the abuser to use technology to kind of continue the control or the attempt to control. Yes. Well, and then they they use the courts. So there are constant, you know, restraining orders, requests for visitation, requests for child support modification. I mean, they could just really harass the woman through the court system, which is legitimate. I mean, it's legal, not legitimate, but it's legal. So I've I've seen a lot of that. Mm Mm-hmm. And so then what can you do to help them when they're on the receiving end of that? We look at the other party. We look at the other party. Maybe we're doing asset checks, bank account checks. I've done surveillance to ensure that the parent isn't driving drunk with their children. So I've been following people from bar to bar with several surveillance units out at the same time. Those are the things that stand out. We've talked to neighbors to make sure there's no abuse of the child, uh, that they don't hear any arguing, screaming, uh, that type of thing going on. Yeah, because I think that often in a situation like that, there are accusations flying back and forth in both directions, and it's very hard to prove some of them. So I would think that being able to call on somebody like you to help gather evidence and proof to support some of the claims would be really valuable. Exactly. So we, we look to see what's important. 
and and then we go on our fact finding mission. What do we need to help our case? What what will make this right? Mm-hmm. So, what are some of the most common misconceptions about personal safety that you run into as you're doing your work? Okay, clarify a little bit for me what you're meaning by personal safety. Well, a lot of the investigating that you're doing is into areas that can be harmful to somebody else. So whether it's financial abuse, like you were talking about with the asset, searching for hidden assets and that type of thing, or behaviors like drunk driving or getting into fights, those are the kinds of things where a person's safety can be in danger, either physical, emotional, financial, psychological safety. And so it sounds like you, a lot of the investigating that you do actually is towards the end of either protecting somebody or helping them protect themselves in one of those areas or documenting incidents where you know, one of those elements of safety is being breached or, or attacked. Right. And, and so, yeah, so it is, a lot of it is, is, is documentation and surveillance where needed and a lot of research. I just, uh, I've had several elder abuse types of cases, financial abuse. Those are really tricky. Um, we have to usually bring an attorney on board and they're, they're very complex, the elder abuse. I did help recently uh, a woman who is 90 years old and was out of money. I helped her recover $250,000 in cashier's checks and $25,000 in cash that had been stolen from her. And with her dementia, she had forgotten about it. And I was able to find the original checks and the FBI got involved at that point and she was made whole. She, She got her money back. But our elders are another very vulnerable population. You know, baby boomers, we're all aging. We're going to see more dementia, more people at risk. And there's just tons of people just preying on those elderly people. So I I do a lot of elder abuse cases too. Oh, wow. I think that is like one of a middle-aged woman's greatest fears, especially if she has lost her partner is, you know, what's going to happen to me as I get older? Am I going to have enough resources to take care of myself through my life? And I know with my mother, and she lived with me throughout her 80s and into the beginning of her 90s. And she and her friends were so bemused by much of what the modern world held that they didn't even recognize scams. They didn't recognize con artists. They didn't recognize people who were manipulating them. Right. So how, like, how would you, how would you educate people on what to look for in those situations? Well, you have to be able to establish a pattern. You have to, there needs to be somebody designated as a trustee. And hopefully most people have that designated as a trustee. And if that's the case, it's a slow and painful process of documenting the dementia, having doctors eventually certify that they are no longer capable of making sound decisions in their best interests, and then wrestling that control of the, the, the money away from the individual. 
so that it, my next door neighbor, I worked with his trustee. He's in his uh, 80s. And when his wife passed away, there were women, one after the other, after the other, just praying on him for money. And he spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars until we were finally able to get to the point that we were able to prove that he had dementia and she was able to take control of the finances and stop that. So it's, it's a coaching process. It's complicated. There's caregiver director that I refer people to, to speak with. That is one of the most difficult things I've seen people go through. And what about elders who don't have dementia, but are just, you know, I mean, they, they've lived through so many decades and the modern world just kind of doesn't make sense. If you are a son or a daughter, what can you do to kind of watch out for things and, and, and notice? Cause, cause what I'm thinking is, so when we're talking about violent incidents, there are pre-contact cues. There's, you know, you get a bad feeling that something is not quite right. I'm sure in these kinds of situations, there's something similar, but I'm not sure that I would recognize signs of potential abuse. So usually if, if it's a, a family member that has a concern, it's usually there's one person in particular that is a subject. And so that's the person that I go after as far as researching what's their past history. Are, are they known to be honest, you know, jobs, assets, maybe interviews of people she, she or he had known in the past. It can be very frustrating if there's not a trustee involved, your only other option is to get law enforcement involved. And if they are not judged to be a, a, a danger to themselves, they can tell you to, to, to go away. And we did have a case years ago when I was on the elder abuse task force with the district attorney's office. We had the last milk dairy in Saratoga, so in Santa Clara County. And a, a gypsy and her husband did some odd jobs for him. And she preyed on him, telling him that she was a virgin. And he bought them cars and all trips and all kinds of things. Uh, the family was just hopping up and down. And we went up there to, to talk with him. And he came out, greeted us with a shotgun and told us to get the hell off of his property. We had nothing further we could do. So it, it can be really frustrating if it's kids, children that are away from their parents. Um, it's, it's like if you can get somebody local to, to keep an eye on the situation, that's what you need to do. And there are organizations that be, if you wanted to have somebody email you, I could give you the, that individual's name if somebody's in need of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a whole area that I really don't know very much about. and. I guess because I am so interested in helping people who are vulnerable to being preyed upon, and that's why this is, is very interesting, you know, to me to hear from you because these are people who are being preyed upon and, and what can you do so that you can uh, mitigate that or, or head it off? Well, and especially I have to tell you with criminal courts right now, it's very different being on the other side of the district attorney's office. And it's been a real eye-opener. We see district attorney office overreaching on charges. And especially now with the COVID virus, these people are not able to even plead their case before a judge for at least seven days after an arrest. 
So we've got a lot of government overreach, overcharging, especially in the Me Too movement era. And we've got the DA threatening, if you don't take a plea deal, you're, you're going to look at 15 to 25 years in prison. So it, it makes our clients, well, who become our clients later, it makes them fearful enough that they might take a plea, even if they're not guilty of something for the fear of having to go away for so long, or even, even if it's something small or just a couple of years of, of your life. So, you know, consulting with a PI and an attorney before charges are even filed against someone is something I've gotten more involved with lately as well. So maybe there's been an arrest, but the DA has not issued charges. We're getting in front of this, finding out the information before so that if the DA does issue, we've got the evidence to show what really happened. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's very interesting because one of the organizations that I've worked with, with women who are in domestic violence situations, one of the common themes was that the men were using the courts against them and were actually getting charges brought against them as being the abuser. And I think that it, for, for women in that position, it's such a shock to basically get the tables turned uh, and have such a distortion of, of reality happen. Yes. And they don't, in many cases have any financial resources because he's got control over all of the finances. Right. And I think, you know, they end up in that situation that you were describing of just like total fear and not knowing that there are resources like you to go to, to say, Hey, you know, can you, can you help me gather the information that I need before this actually ends up in a court? Right. That would be so useful for women to know that if you are in a situation like that, that that you're not basically up shit creek, that there are people who can help you document things and research things to help you make make your case. Right. Well, and then I also just some civil litigation, private investigation. And just a note for everybody, for for women and men vehicle accidents, we want to get to them before they quote lawyer up. So if you are hit either in a crosswalk or your vehicle is hit, you're injured, you're going to want to get to an attorney and a PI as soon as possible. We have to do two things. We, we want to get to the, the driver or the, the person that caused the accident before they lawyer up and, and don't speak to us. And then we also want to get the black box out of the car. So if we can get the letter out, we put a hold on the tow yard or wherever the car is, and then we get the legal means to go in and remove the black box to show that happens. I've had a number of either vehicle injuries, you know, car on car injuries, and then I've had five in the last six months, either death or extreme injury for people in crosswalks. Good heavens. So look both ways, people. (laughs) So what kind of information then do you end up with? Well, we get a statement generally that the, the, I'm trying not to use the legal terms of plaintiff respondent and all of that. So (laughs) the, the driver at fault, we usually get a more honest response of, I was on my phone. I'm, I wasn't paying attention. 
And I'm sorry I was at fault. We, you know, if we can get that bit of information, get that interview done before they get, before the insurance company gets them an attorney. So that's, that's a huge advantage for our, our victims, our injured parties. And then again, to, to get that black box mm-hmm. to see if the, the person, you know, were they accelerating? Were they breaking? What were they doing at the time of the collision? And I mean, the things that you're talking about, I'm just sitting here going like, I had no freaking idea. (laughs) (laughs) And perhaps that's just because I haven't had some of these things happen in my life, but I didn't understand the full scope of what a private investigator actually could do and the, the very many different ways that that your resources and your services can actually be super helpful for somebody who has been a victim. Absolutely. And you know, there's not all that many female PIs in the state of California and particularly here in Santa Clara County. And um, those of us that are women, we network really well together. We support each other and it's a lot of fun. I mean, our cases, you can't make this stuff up. We, We really get involved with our clients and, and uh, getting a positive win for them, whatever that might be. It's great. And, and we're not, it, when we do surveillances, we just fit into the environment, I think, a little easier than the men do. We just don't stand out quite as much uh, as our male counterparts do. Well, that's really interesting. Like, what are some of the advantages then to, to, to being female when you're doing this kind of work? And like, is your agency, is it all women? It's all women. I have one man that I contract with for my more exotic cases. Let's say he's internationally uh, from, he's from another country. So he's, he's my good international uh, undercover guy, but otherwise I run an all female company. So everyone that works for me is a, a woman. And uh, as far as being a woman, our goal is we want to approach people in a non-threatening manner. Getting information is easier we blend into the environment better. And, you know, the bottom line is it's critical to getting a good result for a client is to get that information or that interview out of somebody. Wow. That is really neat. Gosh, I think in another, in another lifetime, I would love to have taken the path that you've taken and been an investigator. It would have been right up my alley. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so if you were going to to just share with the women who are listening one or two tips on things that are most important to know and understand if you are in a situation where you are a victim of some sort of violence or abuse or you know being preyed upon like what tips would you offer again the, the t- a team approach I would say there needs to be a consultation, even if it was at the bar association with an attorney on the case. And I usually work in conjunction with the attorney, but we need to establish what the person's legal rights are and how do we protect that person, you know, financially and physically. And that's when I, we bring the third prong in, which is some kind of therapy or battered women shelter for the, the counseling and the support end of that. So I think it's just getting people connected to all three different components. And then we make a determination what what is the best that we can do to protect 
to protect um, the person's case, especially with children going forward in family law court. You know, what's what what can we do? That makes a lot of sense. And and for a woman who maybe doesn't have deep pockets and huge financial resources, how can she navigate through this process? Well, um, I do have a reduced fee for my uh, domestic violence uh, clients. So I, I, I would be happy to do a uh, on-telephone conversation about this and refer somebody to the bar where it's very inexpensive, 50 to $100. And also just to provide the referral information, they should go to the family court. They have a self-help facilitator that will go through what your rights are. They're not attorneys, but they will go through how to help yourself, how to, how to file a domestic violence restraining order, and they are free of charge. And if it is a domestic violence restraining order, it will also be served by the sheriff free of charge. And is that across the U.S. or is that just strictly California? I don't know if it's across the U.S. I do know it is California. Well, it sounds like something that should be standard resources and standard process across the U.S. So I think I'm going to do some research into that and I'd find be out. love to hear. Yes, I'd love to hear back. Yeah. So one subject that I would really like to explore with you is how you can investigate stalking situations because I know. People who are being stalked are always told, well, you just need to start collecting documentation. You need to document everything. And that's very hard to do as an individual. Do you do a lot of work with stalking victims or working to document stalking cases? Yes. I have some very high-level corporate clients uh, that have been pursued by stalkers one has been an international incident in which I provided about 16 investigators up at the San Francisco airport. We successfully obtained a restraining order against this gentleman that was stalking a vice president of a major company here in Silicon Valley. And uh, we were only able to serve him at the international terminal as he came in and went on to Washington, D.C. And he was also a very well known man, but he he stayed out of the country a lot, but he was ruining the reputation. So there was an online stalking. There was uh, mailers and he would fly into California. So we were able to serve him. We got the restraining order and that actually calmed that situation down. And we've got another one that they just have to put up with it. We've got a homeless woman who is actually very crazy. I think she might be, you know, unmedicated schizophrenic or some kind of huge mental illness, but she's been stalking a, a law firm and the law partners as far as going into their office and photographing herself in their offices. And she wants them to pay her money. She thinks they owe her money. So her, we, we, it's kind of whack-a-mole. <laughs> She'll call from a number and we'll see if we can track the number. And I did find her once at a homeless shelter, but by the time you go get that uh, restraining order, to, to get it stopped, you know, she, she's, she was gone. And then another thing though, that we tell people, especially the ones that are being stopped, it's very dangerous for them when we serve that restraining order. It can make the stalker extremely angry and uh, he can strike out violently. So people have to be very careful and make a safety plan if they're concerned about violence with a stalker and getting a restraining order. 
So just getting the restraining order can escalate maybe a nonviolent stalking situation into a violent one? That's correct. Oh, my. What can a woman who is being stalked do to protect herself in that kind of situation then? Well, they hired uh, an attorney and hired myself, and we coached her. She kept us informed and kept us updated uh, on on the harassment issues. We, well, I mean, we went to court and got the, the restraining order and, and served him, like I said, as he came internationally from Japan, and we put undercover operatives in Japan and found him in Japan and found it out how difficult was to actually affect a, a legitimate service in Japan, but we got people close enough to him to find out that he was probably using uh, United Airlines. And the day that he was going, he was probably going on to Washington, D.C. So that helped me with my operatives. To We staged every entrance and exit from international flights for a 14-hour period. We got him within the first four hours. So, mm-hmm. um, But that took some money, and that was a corporate vice president. So the corporation was, was helping in, in that case with the, the finances. So for, for a woman though, you were mentioning, you know, for a woman who's being stalked, getting that restraining order can escalate into violence. I mean, obviously I work with women for self-defense to teach them what they can do in case the person who is stalking them actually comes after them. It's very common for women in that situation to be told, oh, you just need to buy a gun or you should get a dog or stuff like that. Do you ever work with women to help them come up with a plan to protect themselves after that restraining order has been served? Unfortunately, that is not my forte. That again, I I have to rely on counseling services and so forth. I can go out and find the facts. I can find out where they are, you know, what they're doing for a living, where they're banking, I, I can pull all kinds of information, but I'm the fact finder. I'm the fact finder that helps turn over that information to the court as to our findings. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, you're actually stalking the stalker. Absolutely. <laughs> that should go right after PI slash stalker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's really helpful. And I guess what I would say to women who are dealing with something like this is that you absolutely can take steps to protect yourself. You can learn some self-defense. You can arm yourself with weapons, whether that's a taser or a firearm. I am actually very fond of having a protection dog because you may have a tool like a a taser or a firearm, but it's not always going to be in your hand ready to go when you need it. Right. But a trained protection dog is going to be right there with you all the time. Absolutely. As the, as alarm systems, lighting systems, you know, the doorbell ring. I mean, you've got those types of technologies as well. Yeah. I mean, I know that you are qualified with firearms. Do you, do you still shoot? Do you ever teach women how to shoot? Do you like go to the range and kind of keep your hand in? I don't go frequently. I do go, as does my daughter who works part-time for me. We do train women who have felt in fear of their lives, especially after getting restraining orders and have wanted to shoot but are afraid to. So we uh, have gone to indoor shooting ranges and shown them how to shoot, had them shoot, 
various types of weapons to see what felt good and if they really could do it. Every single one of them has come out of there saying that they could do it. Yeah, that's awesome. That was my experience too. Like I had no experience shooting. I'd never even really seen or touched a firearm uh, until about a decade ago. And as soon as I went to a class and was able to try a whole bunch of different firearms, I was absolutely in love with it. And I think one of the things for women is it's really great to have a female firearms instructor. We, we teach differently and different weapons fit women differently than they fit men. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, uh, I went to a program where I actually got to shoot. I think they had a lineup of like 12 or 13 different, different things from a tiny, tiny little 22 semi-automatic all the way up to a 357 Magnum revolver. And you got to shoot everything and, and just finding what fit the hand and what had a lot of recoil and what didn't was great because I, I came away from it knowing that I could shoot any of them, but certain ones were more comfortable than others. Exactly. And we try and get them the same way. We try and start them with the 32, go to 38, a 357, and then we go on to semi-automatics like a Glock or a 45. The 45 is what I was uh, packing when I retired from law enforcement. Yeah, well, that's great. I'm, I'm glad that you also you know, have provided that kind of training because it is, again, it's something that women are very fearful of. And uh, I think visualize being on the receiving end of, but have a much harder time imagining themselves being comfortable wielding. Yes. And this is one-on-one training. It's, so it's, it's either my daughter who's in her late twenties. She's also a, a, an emergency medical technician. Her name's Rachel. But um, especially having a female right there at your side, maybe shooting next to you, you're trading weapons, you're talking about it. So it's really, it's, it's one-on-one. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So I'm glad I asked the question because I was really curious to hear what your experience had been in dealing with stalkers and then in also supporting women who are being stalked. So that's, that's great. That's great insight. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for putting the information out there. I think what you're doing is so important and so appreciated. So there's, there's one theme that I haven't really like, focused on, but listening to you talk like from the beginning up until now, it's really been a very clear undercurrent throughout everything that you're talking about. And, and that is for you as a woman going through all these different stages of your life and creating your path, you've had a lot of situations where you were the only woman or one of the few women in the business or in an environment. You've had a lot of challenges and obstacles to overcome. I mean, you mentioned briefly having been injured on the job and retiring with disability, which I imagine was a huge life change. And so what it says to me is that you are a very resilient, adaptable woman and have developed a lot of power, personal power and courage over the years. So I'm Thank curious. you. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious because, I mean, it really, that really is not something that you are specifically articulating, but it, it comes through very strongly just listening to you tell the stories and, and relate some of the experiences you have. 
So I'm very curious how you think that women can develop their own personal power and their own sense of courage. For me, it was, you know, after being disabled and being unable to work my profession, that was very devastating. It felt like a total loss of identity. And my ability to be able to lean on a girlfriend who brought me into the Century 21 business and got me going because they have coaching in those programs. And so I just, I left that field altogether. I, I was choosing not to even look at it, although it, it takes a couple of years to litigate disability workers comp and, and final resolutions with government agencies um, as a law enforcement officer. So that, that took some time. And so I just, I ended up devoting myself to something that I started to see I was good at. And so I persevered through something that was brand new to me. I never had any experience, but I saw success and I got some awards and got the thrill of the deal. And, and that just helped build my resilience. So, so going into something that was new, that had coaching and you know, kind of people surrounding me, cheering you on, being in that environment just brought so much growth and so much, you know, more of an understanding and got me out of the cop mindset that we might develop as we're in law enforcement. And then I had the strength to decide I want to pursue this. And now it's just really a passion. But I think it was important to, to have to take that break, be it a decade long or, and just go a different direction. Sometimes any direction is, is okay. You know, and I only chose that because my girlfriend, you know, was the trainer at Century 21. I don't know what else I was going to do. I had no idea what I was going to do. So I was fortunate I fell into that. And I just had a long time to recover, get my strength back, focus on something else, see some successes, and then go, okay, I'm ready to step back out. I'm ready to do this. That is fascinating because I think for many of us, if we, if we have found our thing, and we're in it and enjoying it and doing well, and then we lose it. It is such a smack in the face. And when you realize, well, I'm, I can't do that thing anymore. Now, what the hell am I going to do with my life? It right. really, I'm sure can feel overwhelming. And it sounds yes. so for you, you were very fortunate to have some time and space to kind of process through things. And then to have a friend who just popped up and said, well, Hey, how about doing this? And you were brave enough to say, well, I don't have a clue what this stuff is, but I'm game to try it. Right. Right. And that was, I, I wasn't working at the time. So I would go to a coffee shop every day and read for an hour, hour and a half, you know, study up. And then I started taking the coaching classes that they offered. So it was literally one foot after the other, one day at a time for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the message that I'm hearing is like, when you think that all is lost, that's actually a wonderful time to step into something completely new and not worry too much about, you know, like, oh, is this my new thing? Is this the right thing? But just to give it a try. Right. And see what happens. I imagine if if real estate had not actually been a great fit for you, you probably would have said, "Ah, oh, you know, this is not my thing. I'll try something else." And you would have tried something else. But right, just to give yourself permission 
to say, well, I'm going to let the past be the past and I'm just going to try something new. That takes a lot of courage to do. And I really commend you for that. I think that is a very difficult choice to make, but how cool that that actually gave you some time to recover and heal and then come come back into the field that you had loved so much in a completely different way because now you're doing something that still lights you up but has an impact on people in a very different way. Right. Well, and it, it brought me some skills I didn't have before. I had no idea how to do marketing and advertising and you know, as a realtor you are kind of running your own business. So a lot of those skills I brought with me and that's how I really got launched. Although at, at the present, I, I haven't done any advertising for the last, I think two years, two and a half years. That's I, I did one brochure and then I got picked up because of my, my background, which was um, awesome. But um, yeah, I, I, I think you just give it a shot one foot after the other and, and see where it takes you. Yeah, that that's wonderful. That's cool. I often I have said to my kids like that nothing that you do is ever wasted. It it might seem, you know, when it comes to an end like, oh, why did I bother doing that? Like this is I'm never going to use this again in the future and then you'd be surprised how 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road or even, you know, a year down the road, you're like, "Oh my gosh, I'm so glad I did that before cuz now look how it applies." Like I wouldn't be able to do this without that. Right. And, and I want to really point out, especially in Santa Clara County, and I suppose this is statewide as well, well, the Small Business Administration has coaching. They've got classes that are free. They've uh, got business coaches that you can get paired up. So if you are interested in starting your own small business, they can help you get connected to people that can give you loans. They network you. They're awesome. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get with a uh, radio host, Margaret Jackson. She runs a company called Business on the Edge. And she, so I had coaching with her, much as like I did in the beginning with real estate, although she didn't know how to be a private investigator. She was fascinated by it. We would meet uh, once a month. We would go over business plan, uh, marketing, and so forth. And she just was really instrumental in giving me the encouragement to go forward. And she is running a magazine for small businesses and it's called Concierge Magazine. And I'm one of the Power Women uh, edition that they just did in September. I have that website if anybody would like a, a virtual copy of that. But it really concentrates on small business owners and how many millions and millions and millions of dollars are available for women and minority groups across the state from federal city, county, government money. It's just amazing. And they have seminars that teach you how to get registered with the different agencies so that you can bid or get that particular kind of work. So it, it was an amazing discovery. That's neat too, because really that fits right in with all of your investigation work. And the message there is you don't have to do this alone. There are resources available to you to support and encourage you. And you really don't have to deal with the situation alone. Right. And it was free. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, we will include the link to that article in the show notes. Great. Yeah. So how can people get in touch with you? 
best is to go to my website, www.pi-croot.com. And there's a form that you can fill in from there and uh, that'll send me the message. Okay. We will include that in the show notes as well. And is there anything that you want to just say as a final insight or, or thought for women who are concerned about their safety, concerned about their situation and maybe needing some support? Just that I encourage all women. Many times there's so much fear there. They don't want to take any, any steps. And I just encourage everyone make an informed decision. So get the information that doesn't mean you have to do it. That's not a decision you have to make right now, but get the education, the information so that you can make an informed decision on if you want to leave or how you want to protect yourself and your children. Mm. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, on that note, I want to say, Tracy Crute, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a very different kind of discussion than than I have normally had, but I think so much value and insight through what you have shared. So thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.